Welcome back to a particularly Christmassy Talk Evidence, your monthly dive into the world of EBM. As always, we're bringing you some top science, this time looking back through the last year, as well as in the Christmas BMJ. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by your favourite EBM nerds. Helen, can you introduce yourself? I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor at the BMJ and a resting GP. We've stuck with resting now. What does it mean to be a resting GP? That's ridiculous. It means you spend too much time being a mum and editing to do any clinical work. (laughs) (laughs) Look, there's a a dire need for GPs back on the the front line. I'm happy to come back at any time. They make it easy. It is impossible to get back. That's a whole other rant, I feel like. (laughs) Maybe not for this podcast. Carl, can you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Carl Hennigan. I'm Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, an academic and not a resting GP, an active GP who's working in urgent care over the holiday period. Thank you. Just to get some... Just get your little violin out. Just to get some, like, love out there and people think, oh, poor you. Your kids are expecting some good Christmas presents this year because of that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's because, actually... The NHS are the only people who email me and tweet me on a daily basis saying, well, sending me nice messages saying, can you work this weekend? There you go. <laughs> um, so it's the festive period and after a long year of evidence, or maybe in some cases, elections, lack of evidence, we're going to take a look at Christmas and over I'll look back over the altmetric top 100 papers. Um, so Helen, in this festive period... How superstitious are you feeling? Yes, well, I've got a great uh, research paper for you guys this week, which is from the BMJ's Christmas edition, which is where everything is a bit um, unusual. So good science, slightly quirky questions. And I have a paper called Q Fever. Um, Can you guess what this, Carl, is about? Well, I know what it's about because I've read it. It's about about something I can't do. Something I can't do. Be quiet. Yeah, that's very difficult for me. I'll I'll try. So these authors say that saying quiet is about the worst thing that you can do at work. Um, And they say Adam Kay, ex-junior doctor, says in his book, say the keyword to a doctor and you are all but performing an incantation summoning up the sickest people in the world to your hospital. And I certainly remember being told off a lot in hospital. I have a very small brain circuit between my thoughts and my mouth (laughs) and the word quiet did used to come out of my mouth quite a lot so this looks at whether saying the word quiet out loud increases your clinical workload and this is done by a rather glorious um collection of um of lab clinicians and a secondary aim of this paper um which is nonetheless very important is to answer the question, what does a medical microbiologist actually do? (laughs) So just to say, this is done by the the microbiology team at Lancashire Teaching Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. And there's a very sweet photo of them. There is. I I have to say, it is really written well, this, and I was (laughs) slightly astounded when You might chuckle out loud when you read it. (laughs) At the end of the introduction, it says, a secondary aim of the trial was to answer another mystery of the medical world, what medi- medical microbiologists actually do. 
And that's a question that I think is actually unanswerable by research. Do you? Yeah. I would just say to you, <laughs> it is practically impossible to know what <laughs> Well, we're not going to throw this do. paper out based yeah. on that, Carl. I'm continuing. <laughs> um, so these, um, these microbiologists uh, did a randomised uh, study in their unit and they either said, today will be a quiet day, or they had to avoid making such statements. And over the course of a couple of months, they measured their clinical workload, their clinical episodes, which are basically calls for advice, probably from people like you in urgent care, and um, the number of results that needed action. And they found that they had about five more clinical episodes of care a day on the days when they said, um, today's going to be a quiet day, but this didn't reach their meaningful difference in workload, which they uh, said would be more than uh, 30 uh, jobs. So they concluded that actually we can all say quiet safely. Does that convince you? Would you would you utter it in your well, urgent care centre, Carl, based on this study? Well, it's an interesting issue, isn't it, first? The first thing is, you, you just, you know, look, if it's really busy and you say it's going to be quiet, or, you know, people are going to think you're a bit mad. <laughs> so the reason people say normally in the health services, and you do this, you walk up, you go up to the reception and say, oh, it's pretty quiet around here. And everybody goes, oh, my gosh. Well, the phenomenon that everybody knows what's going to happen is regression to the mean. It's more likely to get busier, which is more like the average. So there's that slight issue. My second issue here is when you do the critical appraisal of this is whether the control is okay doing nothing. Maybe you should have done the opposite, like it's going to be really busy. And then you might have said something got some opposite action. But so I think follow-up trial next year. Yeah, so a follow-up trial of a true sham control. Mm, you're getting a bit un-Christmassy and screwed. No, I, <laughs> um, I suspect what I love about this paper, and I might put this on the teaching list, is the limitations of the study. Oh, yes, good. And the third limitation is, thirdly, we did not control for other confounding factors such as seasonal variation, number of microbiological samples received, or presence of black cats, cracked mirrors, or lone magpies. <laughs> that is my best limitation of the year. Um, I'm not sure how you would interpret that in the context of critical appraisal, but I think it's amazing to get that past the BMJ <laughs> worthy asleep at this the wheel. This was my favourite paper of the year. Are you sure you actually read this Yeah, paper? I did. I read it all and I laughed. I laughed out loud at the hilariousness and well I laughed out loud at the dryness of their writing and I love that they sent a picture of themselves so I can imagine them sitting in their lab. So here's a question for you. writing yeah. this paper. I'm not sure if there's another journal that has a reputation for ridiculousness at Christmas, antics and interest and so well read as the Christmas edition. And some of these papers can get in the top 1,000 or 100 of the old metrics, really can get in the news. And some of them, other papers have really hit the headlines, haven't they? What's I mean, the history of the Christmas BMJ? When, when did it start? Is it? Is it? Well, funny you should ask that because it's quite a mysterious question and nobody actually knows the answer. Nobody living at the BMJ appears to know the answer. Um, but we know, spontaneously. We know from Tony Delamoth, who is one of our retired deputy editors, that it was already a tradition in 1987 when he joined. Um, so we know it's been going at least 30 years uh, with the idea that you take a break from normal publishing and focus on things that are light-hearted, sometimes satirical, sometimes thought-provoking.
So talking of altmetrics, Carl, you've been looking in there to see what from the past year could inspire us. So what have you found? Well, interestingly, um, if you go this week, the altmetric top 100 of the year was What's released. What's the altmetrics? I think you should explain that. For yeah, people. so it's a, an alternative metric. Mm. So as opposed to like the traditional metric is to look at sort of page views, page downloads and citations. This looks at social media interaction use, like number of tweets, number of blogs that refer to the article, and number of news articles that refer. And there's a slight weighting, so news articles get more than tweets. So, for instance, you could say that a really impressive paper to me is an altmetric of about 1,000. And the number one paper of the year was actually... Uh, had an altmetric of 13,557 at this moment time, which is about realistic neural talking head models, whatever that's about. <laughs> but um, what's interesting in all this is that actually quite a number of BMJ papers in the top 100. So it goes back to this time last year. So it just incorporates last year's Christmas edition. So last year's parachute paper to prevent death and major trauma is in there at number eight out of 100 with an altmetric of 6,371. You've also got sugary drink consumption, that drinking sugar, sugary soda and fruit juice increases your risk of cancer, according to this study of more than 100,000 people. Uh, prevalence of cervical disease was in at number 42. I like this one, and I'm not sure how this got in the top 100, though. The effect of breakfast on weight and energy intake. Could intermittent fasting really be the key to weight loss? This meta-analysis of previous studies suggests skipping breakfast might be a good strategy if you're trying to lose weight. And I guess right now, post-Christmas, there are quite a few people who might be considering skipping breakfast. But my favourite, I think, was this one, which is really applicable now, is uh, number 91 of 100. Dose response associations between accelerometry, measured physical activity and sedentary time and all-cause mortality. What this say, basically says, being more active and less sedentary significantly reduces your risk of death. The obvious. This is the department of obvious, isn't it, really? But actually, what it means is, right now, you've got to get your New Year's resolution in place and get off your couch, stop watching TV and start doing some activity. And that's what you need to start for 2020. Especially if you're in your middle age, it says. Oh, yes. Uh, middle, well, I actually think you two are getting there, aren't you? <laughs> no, I don't think we are. I don't think right? we are at all. No. no, no. I mean, it's all relative. Isn't yes. It? When uh, does middle age start? <laughs> well, it depends how old you are, doesn't it? Isn't, isn't 50 the new 40? Yeah, I think I'll take 50. Yeah. yeah. Let's take oh, 50. Right, Thank you for the window. <laughs> um, the interesting thing I always think, looking in the altmetrics, and this seems to be the pattern every year, is it's all food and exercise with us. It's I the know. things that aren't I particularly find that medical. It's depressing. So things that people actually care about, I suppose. Well, I think it's interesting, and we've been looking into this, whether the, the problem is now is that um, in selecting research, we're starting to skew to these new type of issues like all metrics because they get you this instant hit in the news, the blogs, the, the Twitter sphere. And so editors are starting to choose this more often. And we're actually taking a bit of a look at this at the moment, so we'll come back to you in the future. But I think it may be skewing the choice of articles so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're more likely to see this stuff because actually it's more likely to get this high up metric that might not actually bear out though in the citations so we don't understand the impact i on think they practice. are correlated yeah but whether they impact in future decisions about it yes. changes in healthcare and guidelines be interesting to see because there are not many 
of what I consider the important systematic reviews or mm. randomised controlled trials in this top 100, because no. there's lots of observational studies in there. Perhaps it also relates to, as science becomes increasingly open to the public, what topics the public can easily identify with and tweet and engage with and blog about themselves mm. as well. Or maybe what they're actually interested in, you know, ivory tower, academics working away and actually people just want to know what's good to eat. Should I eat not. fish? Yeah, <laughs> easy. Great, well there you go. So that's two things, well, one thing to start doing, which is some exercise, and one thing to stop doing, which is worrying about saying it's quiet. So, as we record this, Carl, you have just come back from Sydney. and Can I get my violin out? Because Carl's just come back from Sydney at the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference, and I didn't go, but Carl did. Carl's been in the sunshine. Well, there, was there any sunshine? All those bushfires? Have you seen photos of Sydney recently? Somebody's got to do it, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, I have to say, it was um, the first thing is to say, what an amazing conference. The Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference is one of the most thoughtful events that I go to or I've ever been to. It makes me think, and I come away with sort of so many issues and thoughts about what we're doing in healthcare, what we're trying to achieve. But before that, yes, it was in Sydney. Um, the smoke was horrendous. And there was a report in the newspaper said that if you're outside today, it's equivalent of smoking 37 cigarettes a day. And it, it must have been like what it was like in the 50s when before the Clean Air Act. And it really did bring home to me the sort of sense of there are huge issues with pollution added in the cars, that the significant car traffic and the pollution at the same time. The air quality was utterly miserable and was having a significant impact on people's breathing and respiration out there. Mm. So there's huge issues around pollution and what we're doing in the environment. It has to be a focus in the 2020s. But actually, that's what preventing overdiagnosis is also contributing to, is to saying what we should be doing is ensuring when we make diagnosis and target healthcare, we're doing it to people who are likely to benefit and we're not wasting resources and using... Uh, precious resources, wasting energy, carbon emissions on stuff we shouldn't be doing. He's going to start to rant. No, I'm not going to rant. Please. I'm going to I'm going to rail back from that and say um, there were some really interesting uh, bits there that were uh, mo moments to be in the room. First was to say there was uh, the inaugural Lisa Schwartz lecture. Uh, for those who don't know, Lisa Schwartz died earlier this year. And she worked with, uh, lifelong, uh, worked with Steve Woolish and her partner, and they've done amazing work in too much medicine, overdiagnosis, medical marketing, all sorts of areas. And Steve gave the first inaugural lecture, and it was fantastic, and it was a masterclass in a talk. What did he talk about? He talked about all sorts of areas of their work. He basically gave a sort of life story of their work, of what they'd done together. And so that goes through... Things like the Know Your Chances, teaching the public about absolute versus relative risk so you can interpret healthcare information, uh, screening and informing the decision aids, the impact on medical marketing, and also some stuff around the lead time bias as a major issue. And I think that's one of the things, if you understand screening, you really need to understand this concept of lead time bias because much of what we do is, is just diagnose people earlier 
Therefore, if you have measures like five-year survival, they just get better, but you have no impact on overall mortality. Mm, that's when I first arrived here and people were starting to talk about the problems with screening. I never really understood it until, yeah. I can't remember who it was, sat me down and explained what lead time bias was. And it was just one of those light bulb moments where mm. a different perspective kind of helps you see clear. The other thing that was interesting was probably two things. Um, there was a, a talk by Michael Shirley, who was a patient representative who gave one of the most vivid narratives of his journey through prostate cancer. And and and, and, and as he said at the end, he said, you know, I, I thought I'd die with this. And actually, it, that's not the case. And, and his whole story and... And what he told was a really interesting journey about our impact on giving people diagnoses and misinformation and sometimes Mm. doctors doing things without thinking through the issues. And Ray Moynihan, who works with the BMJ and uh, was also at the conference, uh, actually did a quick interview with Michael for us. Um, Michael Shirley, age 81. Uh, previously, 12 years ago, diagnosed with Gleason 7 prostate cancer. So you just gave a keynote here at the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference and you told an incredibly powerful story about what you described as being a victim of overdiagnosis. How did this happen? Just, just briefly tell us. The urologist said I had... Uh, prostate cancer and I'd be dead in three years if I didn't have an immediate prostatectomy. My response to that was fright and and I wondered because I'm a cynical university graduate whether what I was being told was true so I wanted a second opinion. He suggested his partner which I found very offensive and I never saw him again. This session you just spoke in was about the commercial drivers of, of too much medicine. And so you're really identifying the, the sort of the commercial interests of, of, of professionals here, aren't you? I am. And one of those skites that, oh, sorry, I should say boasts that he's done 6,500 radical prostatectomies and he's probably earned fees in the $150 million area. So the possibility of him wanting to be uh, balanced about whether you're a customer uh, for surgery or not doesn't exist. He can't separate himself from that huge flow of money. I think one of the reasons you opted not to get treated, not to go through with the radical prostatectomy, uh, was that you discovered some information about overdiagnosis. Is that correct? Yes, it was Alex uh, Barrett... uh, a professor at the University of Sydney, who was questioning what was going on in the newspaper. And I thought, wow, if an expert is questioning this, maybe it's time for me to question. And that sent me off to um, a more independent urologist who was at a different hospital. And so you were told you'd be dead in three years. Here we are, what, how many years later? And you look pretty alive to me. Nine years later. And I have absolutely no health issues of any kind. You're, you're a bit of a skier too, aren't you? Yes, I ski every year. Looking forward to doing that next month. And, and while you, you, 
you are having a very good life. You talked about your family today, about lots of laughter and red wine and so on. Tell us what it's actually been like living with this idea of, of an imminent death. It's devastating. It, it interferes with everything that you're thinking of. Uh, as I said today, I didn't bother to have any dental checkups because why, why bother? I'm going to be dead shortly. I have a 14-year-old car. I haven't updated it. Why would you bother? I'm not going to be around to enjoy it. I don't believe that now, but it's only been this year that has reached that point of confidence where I think I am going to survive. I'll die with it, not of it. And you've become something of an advocate, a mega advocate in a way, to try and raise awareness among men about the dangers of prostate cancer screening, the dangers of treatment. Um, what sort of, uh, tell me what you do as an advocate. Well, I, I haven't been very successful. We have set up a, a website that's had 2.7 million hits. So quite a few men have seen the latest research on that website. Uh, but. I'm just scratching the surface of communicating with the general public because we need to get to men before they have a concern about their prostate so they've got time to think about it and learn what the options really are. And how do you feel when you see those messages that still come across in breakfast television that, that, that healthy men should go and get tested? It's the right thing to do. How do you feel when you see that stuff? Oh, I want to throw things at the television. I think it's appalling that... And there are uh, some very well-known Sydney radio jocks who had a, a radical prostatectomy, and, of course, they're great advocates of it. It's horrifying. Michael, thank you very much. Pleasure. I think that was really interesting, and the thing that I was really keen to try and get more of in this conference is trying to put a face to overdiagnosis. Oh, yeah. So most of the stories that you hear are from people who got a diagnosis and, and feel that they have their life saved. And I think one of the marketing problems that overdiagnosis has going out to the public is making people feel that this could happen to them um, or it has happened to them. Mm. And so we were so keen this year to try and get some patients to speak who actually identified with being overdiagnosed or overtreated um, themselves. So that's really interesting. That makes me think, just to say, in 2020, preventing overdiagnosis will be in Oxford in September. And there are a couple of things that will be on the agenda. I like that idea of the uh, patient representative and getting the stories together. But one of the things that struck home to me was this concept of, you know, the proportion of people being diagnosed with conditions is going up and up and up from these expanding disease definitions. Tessa Cox talked about polycystic ovary syndrome there and using the Rotterdam criteria that's been adopted by the guidelines literally doubled the number of women with polycystic ovaries overnight. Hypertension guidelines increased the number of Australians by 2 million who would have a diagnosis of hypertension overnight if they were adopted. So one of the things that is a move is to bring primary care definitions in terms of redefining the diagnosis definitions so that they're more applicable and, and more, more, if you like, reflective of the actual problems on the ground and don't lead to this massive wave of people with diagnosis. And I think that really is an incredibly important issue because... 
you know, when you look at some of the way the guidelines are going, is as soon as you hit forty, you have a di- di- diagnosis, and then you're you're right for treatment. And is that the right way we want to go? So I think this this area is is such a, an interesting area, important area. But I do like what you've said, and I think we should go out and get a call for individuals to give mm-hmm. us their stories on what overdiagnosis or their journey has been when they received a diagnosis and like Michael Shirley 15 years later they're still standing up and talking about hey I give it up things like I thought it wasn't worth having preventive care I stopped looking after my teeth all of these issues mm. that were really important that now he's saying I'm going to take them up again yeah well when overdiagnosis does come around we're going to be there with some talk evidence as well so uh, make sure you keep subscribing so you can hear are we us. going to have a live cast from overdiagnosis Oxford Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's beyond the technical challenges. <laughs> so you also heard, Carl, at Overdiagnosis, the launch of the BMJ's um, Commercial Conflicts of Interest collection. And do you have a conflict of interest to declare there, Helen? I might. <laughs> I'm editing the collection. <laughs> and uh, and I'm a co-author on the, on the paper that, <laughs> that um, Fiona Godley, our editor-in-chief, um, delivered one of the keynotes on. Can you wait a minute? I've lost my paper. <laughs> yeah, do you want me to talk about it or do you want to ask me questions about it, Carl? I just want the paper. I just because I wanted to... Where have I put my paper on it? Sorry about I this. I don't know. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. Uh, yeah, here it is. Shall I talk while you're finding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I'm losing the plot. Uh, expanding disease definition. Oh, there it so is. So the key... Go on, fire away. Yeah, go the... on, fire away. Okay. So, so um... the key part point of... Um... Kel, should you just start that again? Yeah. So the key point of this uh, paper was to make the point that financial entanglement is distorting the production and use of healthcare evidence and harming individuals and wasting um, health system resources. And in this paper, the BMJ were joining together with some other, um, a kind of diverse collection of um, people interested in this area. Who's that? Who's what? Who are those diverse people? Uh, Well, there's like 12 different authors on there from different places. Do you want me to? No, no. Do we? Um, To say that we can... So we join with this uh, group of authors to make the point that We've got to a point in our understanding now where it's clear that certain people or certain organisations with vested commercial interests... um, No, that's not right. So we've got to a point now where what we're really trying to say is that evidence and education and practice needs to be increasingly independent from commercial financial ties. Um, And if you need a few stats, that there were a few in there picking out some of the problems. For example, that... Um, around 60% of research in the US is funded by industry and that work typically finds in favour of those fu- funders' um, products. That sponsored education often presents information which more favorable, is more favourable towards uh, products and guidelines and recommendations for practice that are produced by people with financial ties or organisations with financial ties tend to expand disease categories, tend to increase testing and recommend increasing treatment. And the point of this paper is to say that things... Um, should be different uh, and actually that we're starting to see that they are different and what we wanted to do was to try and present some examples of how research and education and practice are moving in that direction. So for example in research um, the Italian government taxes drug companies 
in order um, to then spend that money on research which is in the public interest. In education, the Norwegian Medical Association has said that they are not going to have industry-sponsored meetings and courses. And if you if you go to those courses, they will not be counted as formal education um, or be accredited. We can see that similarly for patients, advocacy organisations in the US uh, National Women's Health Network are freeing themselves from industry funding. And in practice, there are lots of examples where um, clinicians are ending their reliance on company sales representatives um, with groups such as No Gracias and No Advertising Please and Messis encouraging the use of information which is produced independently from drug makers. And what we're calling for in this paper is for people to join us and to sign up, um, and I'm sure Duncan will be happy to put the link in for this, to sign Absolutely. up to say that you support this idea of independence from industry. We want to hear your ideas on what you or other people could be doing to make things better and more independent. And we want you to write to us with your examples of what you're doing, because we want to publish these and make clear that this is a problem that we can solve. Um, it's not insoluble and things can be done and are being done successfully. Sounds like that's the McDonald campaign for re-election, isn't it? <laughs> in the, the socialist agenda for research in healthcare. Vote for me now or else. Look, uh, Hold on, I, you just got, your, you, you designated yourself uh, some major role as, what did yeah, you say you were going to be the other day, like head of the NHS? Uh, give, yeah, yeah, the yeah. government should give you all the money and you'll decide how to spend it. This is a minor role that working for Apple. Carl's just going to the dark side. Look, uh, yeah, totally. Look, <laughs> this is a real interest. You know, I've listened to Fee's talk and it was interesting as she was talking. It was a great talk. In fact, um, it's available online, so we might put the link as well on the yep, webcast absolutely. link. So it's really interesting. I suspect, and when I listened to it, I thought, and, it, and when I was hearing it, it jumped a little bit around. But actually, I think what's happened here is, I think there's been about a 20-year journey in the BMJ where this issue just keeps coming up and up. And it, every few years it's been coming up and it's like now it's like brewing to the top. And there's been quite a lot in the last 12, 18 months. And some things are happening like the cost of drugs is going through the roof, isn't there? The commercial pressures are higher than ever. The sort of new, we've moved beyond drugs to devices and to technologies. So the, the, the potential for commercialization is far greater than ever. So all of this is creating a sort of a real big melting pot of problems that occur. What I slightly have a problem with all of this is there's just too many asks within it. And I think it'd be interesting to think of paring them down and trying to think, right, what's achievable as opposed to this is just another statement and we go round and round for another 20 years and we re revisit this. I imagine you have some thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I have been thinking about this. One of the things, because like, although we support calls for more research on the effects of industry entanglement and strategies to end it, I don't support more calls for research. I think this is a, a real to step back time, actually, and really think through what do we want to achieve. And the one that was interesting to me was this issue around educational activities for health professionals to end the reliance on industry funding and end financial relationships between their leadership and industry. And that's because I think that's where it all stems from the problems. And the idea of having a sort of national fund that you could draw on to go to the events which were independent, where you could reflect on practice, I think would be a really important change and allow people to have a much more thoughtful process about thinking about the complexity of healthcare without having somebody market the latest drug to you that might influence your practice. Mm. If we think back to the, the harms podcast that you 
did a little callback there. There were there were a number of things there though about you know the roles of uh, regulators in in doing stuff and um, the sort of ghost management, the stage management of of getting a new drug or device on the market. So, do you think that just focusing on education is actually enough when? It's the whole system that that you know is open to these these conflicts of interest. The thing is, though, is this is the point. If you go to Fees Talk, as I said, is that it's almost like the BMJ and and many people have been going around in circles for about twenty years and are coming to a point where this is a real issue. But actually, if you don't start with something right at sort of the roots of the problem, you're unlikely to then to grow up to where all the branches of the complex issues are. So I'm saying go right back down to where the problem exists. It starts at the beginning with training and education. Fundamentally the relationship. Out. But couldn't you argue that it starts at the beginning of any of those? Couldn't you say it starts at the beginning with the distorted evidence base? Because if you didn't have that, then you wouldn't have the marketing of that distorted evidence base yeah, but in that, education. Yeah, but that distorted evidence base comes out of people who've been trained in a certain way and educated in a certain way. Mm. I'm sort of coming, I'm feeling very organic today, nurturing and, <laughs> you know, at the point of germination of all the problems. Where do they arise from? And so at this point, if you can fix some of these issues, but if all we're doing is going to more events where people are marketing more at us, it's like we're on TV and a big advertising channel and we're going, we're not affected by what we buy. Mm. We're just being marketed at too much. Mm. Separating out and going to events where you can truly think about the issues and you don't feel you're commercially sponsored is, uh, I think, an important issue. It does feel like this is coming at the right time. I suppose more and more people are aware of that, and I think just a broader conversation in society around the kind of influence of companies. You can make a New Year's resolution. Free yourself. Anybody who wants a piece of work out there right now, what we need to work out is how much money is being spent on educational activities that's funded by everybody, governments, industry, and all sorts of people together, and then say, how much would it cost if we replace that with some fund? And I think that would be quite an interesting activity in 2020 to try and solve. Well, there you go. If you want to do that work or any other work, write up about the, the things that you're doing. Then I'll put the link in the podcast text for people to go and do that. So we have come to the point in the podcast where we usually have, we give Carl free reign to go and uh, tell us what's on his mind, have a rant. But he's been doing that all year. And in fact, even in this podcast, we can't stop him. So this time we are going to hand the mantle over to Helen. And what's got you fired up this week in the Christmas BMJ? Well... It's one of my sort of returning topics of strife. There are a few things that get me really cross, and one of them is gender bias. And last year in the Christmas issue, we heard about the unpleasant experiences that some female medics have returning to work after they've had children. And this year, uh, we have some, some authors adding to my angst on these issues. So they say that women remain underrepresented on faculties of medicine and in the life sciences, that women earn lower salaries, receive fewer research grants and receive fewer citations than their male colleagues. And now to add to this list of woes in the Christmas issue, these authors tell us that men and women 
frame their research papers slightly differently in terms of the language that they use and that this um, this difference is associated with um, fewer citations uh, for female um, authored papers down the line. So it basically means that that either male dominated papers are slightly oversold or that female dominated ones are slightly undersold. So this was a study Can where I they... Can come in there? No, it's my <laughs> rant. <laughs> I'm going to go quiet, everybody. Go quiet. This is a study where they looked at about 100,000 abstracts in PubMed journals and they compare the use of 25 positive words. So these are words like novel, favourable, promising, unique, excellent, supportive, spectacular, remarkable, encouraging. All of these words that as an editor I try and delete out <laughs> irrespective of what your gender is. But somehow it seems that um, they, they creep in more often in papers which are first and last authored by male authored com authors compared to females. Um, and the, the, the absolute difference is small, um, but it is linked to um, uh, reduced citations down the line. And what it builds as, in a sense in my mind, is that there are these multiple small things that happen over your life as a female that add to this general culture um, that it's slightly harder for you than men. But Can obviously, I... Carl can't let me have that round <laughs> oh, myself. Oh, I've got to come in. Well, one of the developments in 2020, 2010, uh, one of the developments in the last decade has been big data, artificial intelligence, and our use of databases in ways that mystify me on a daily basis. I think you can tell absolutely nothing from this paper because it's big data gone mad. Look, it's telling you about the relationship of the first and last author when they're female compared to the first and last author when they're male. Yes. So so that means the middle of the paper could have been filled with yes, it could. men I'm not saying women. this research study is perfect. And to be honest with you, the last time I published the paper, every single person contributed to the draft. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is mm -hmm. it suggests, if this is true, that actually all the people in the middle shouldn't be authors. No, I don't think it does suggest that. But those people that the first and the last author, I would say, are more influential. They have a stronger steer on where things end up well, yeah, than we, sometimes the people in the well, middle. Well, we sometimes the second author can be just as important. And well, so, that's true. But over a hundred thousand papers. Yeah. So that's kind of, so. This is one of these hmm. papers where they've they've just lumped together a load of studies, and you've got precision over accuracy. It would be much better. What do you mean by precision over accuracy? Well, what it means this feels is, like a big data. -y, uh, yeah, what yeah. it means is you can create numbers that actually have uh, that are statistically significant because actually the more you sample, the variation gets smaller and smaller. So that difference is significant, but actually it might not mean anything because it's some way from the actual target of what you want to understand. So it could be much better to go in depth to about two hundred papers and really go in depth and analyse what the issues are and look at that in depth. But this is something you can run on a computer really quite simply with a big data technique. And I'd much prefer somebody to go to me and say, look, are we going to do in-depth interviews? We're really going to look at this in some way to say, is there something really happening here? And if so, what it is? 
and then I'll come back to you. And so this is to say it's not always quantitative and sometimes it's about qualitative issues. I know people will be shocked at that as, a, as an evidence-based <laughs> medicine, but this is about going in-depth to try and understand the issue. Well, Carl, you just said, Carl, you just said that you haven't published a Christmas research paper, so I think you found your job for 2020. Yeah, and we it can, can't be big data. You can data. look into gender. Yeah. It'll be something about the uselessness of big data in 2020. I think this is particularly interesting when you also read that alongside... Um, one of our colleagues' uh, articles this year, which says it's time, time's up for he and him as the default pronouns for doctors, which is essentially making the point that the, uh, the, the profession has changed to be more women than men, and yet still in the most cited papers, in different positions, there are, there are, uh, there are fewer... Well, I think it's women. interesting, you see, because I think if you go into primary care and general practice, I think that's, that is the case, and that's been the case for quite some time. Mm. So the sort of, you know, the shared responsibility and most of the issues that people find in primary care around families and juggling that sort of aspect of the, of the care, whereas in other specialties, that's not the case, is it? And so you do get these isolated areas in medicine, and I think it's an interesting issue is there are difficulties in some areas like surgery where it must be more difficult to to survive as a woman and in the gender issues are more prominent. But in general practice, for quite some time, it's very been a very balanced speciality. And once you're a GP, you're all pretty equal in the practice. So actually, it's a very level playing field of, of what you do and how you go about managing a practice. Mm. The medical students all coming through are predominantly women though so that whole there must be a lump of old men who are kind of going out of the top of the I think that's sometimes one of the things that makes it difficult to analyze these papers that there's a kind of legacy effect to some extent um and I think I think you're right Carl there's a there's a tension between doing a big study um and there's a tension between then having a study that's maybe more in depth but it's small and then you have reviewers saying well this is very small <laughs> you know <laughs> Don't so get I, me I think it's yeah. I think it's kind of it's treading a fine line isn't it this is one piece of information and it is a big data piece of information and it needs to be triangulated with other information that's collected in in different ways don't get me into a rant about the sort of metrics that we use in academia to promote people and push them on because that is really... Should we save that for we'll January? We'll save that for another <laughs> year. But one issue I think is worth saving for next year and being thoughtful about is the workforce issues because I do mm. not think this will be an easy thing to solve because the stresses and strains of clinical practice are making it more difficult to be a 100% person in terms of the clinical responsibilities because the stresses of it are significant. And it's very draining to do full days of clinical practice and to do that day after day and not get burnt out. So I think there's a big problem on the horizon. Absolutely, that we have two portfolio career GPs yeah, in the room yeah, here to, yeah. to attest to that. I apologise. <laughs> Well, there we go. That is another thing that we want to talk about in 2020. That's it for Talk Evidence for 2019. We hope you've enjoyed us over the last year. 
As always, we want to hear from you, so if you have something interesting to throw into the debate about conflicts of interest or a point on, on gender and medicine, perhaps, then go to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out how to get in touch and we'll include you in the podcast next year. If you haven't listened to our full back catalogue of a year, everything that we've done is available on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. So until 2020, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Merry Christmas and a happy New Year. Happy New Year. Year. (laughs) See you in 2020.